0: Matters from EY. Hello and welcome to this podcast from EY's UK Centre for Board Matters for Non-Executive Directors. I'm Justine Green and our focus this time is board diversification. According to research from the Financial Reporting Council, the majority of FTSE 100 boards remain all white. Since the death of George Floyd and the global Black Lives Matter movement, racial inequality is more sharply in the spotlight. To discuss the changes needed now, I'm pleased to welcome a distinguished panel, and we're all joining the conversation remotely. First, Arun Batra, OBE, EY Partner and Diversity Lead. Hello, Arun.
1: Hello there, Justine.
0: And Gavin Lewis, Managing Director, Head of UK LGPS, Institutional Client Business at BlackRock, and one of the founders of hashtag TalkAboutBlack. Hello, Gavin. Hi, Justine. Arun, this year's update report from the Parker Review, called Ethnic Diversity Enriching Business Leadership, found 59% of FTSE 350 companies did not meet the target of having at least one BAME director on their boards. Where are we now?
1: Well, Thank you, Justine. And just for clarity, so in the FTSE 100, it's now 37% of boards uh, that still remain all white. And in the FTSE 350, uh, it's 59%. So we've made some progress since the 2017 report, um, uh, where there's 51% in the FTSE 100 that were all white, but progress has been slow. Where are we now? Well, I think in my 25 years of being in the world of diversity and inclusiveness, I've never seen anything like this. And the momentum has been driven largely by the horrors that we all witnessed um, in the uh, US. So what have we seen? A a real unprecedented outpouring from UK business making statements uh, and commitments right across the board. Um, A commitment to change regulation um, to ensure that some of the inequalities that we have all witnessed are integrated within to the legislative uh, framework. We've seen the development of a new uh, race body um, and we've seen a push again for more ethnic uh, pay reporting. But on a, on a more granular level for businesses, we've seen an explosion, for example, uh, race equality uh, networks, businesses wanting to examine their organisational uh, infrastructure and targets being set right across the board. So a, a real push in a way that I haven't seen um, um, before.
0: And in terms of moving from reporting and talking to real action and outcomes, what are EY doing?
1: So Justine, I mean, Ey for many years have been proactive around uh, race equality and equality more generally, but like every other business, um, we have been particularly um, impacted by what we saw, and that has made us raise our game even more. So, so what are we doing? You you would have seen perhaps a statement that was issued by our new managing partner Howell Ball into the press. Uh, where he committed to level the playing field for our black colleagues. And I use <coughs> black very carefully here because there was a, an emphasis that we recognised as a business that we really needed to focus on our black colleagues rather than just what we would normally have done and looking at all uh, of our black and Asian minority ethnic colleagues uh, on the basis that we have recognised there is a degree of disproportionality uh, that exists uh, for them. We've invested hugely in race fluency, in trying to understand what it is that we need to do to make our communities far more race fluent. Uh, On the premise that we know that in EY, like many other places, there is still a nervousness about addressing certain um, issues. We've set up an an allies program. So we've got uh, we are committed to ensuring that there's a proper uh, ally program with some really good sponsorship uh, that goes uh, with it um, we've also um, final couple of things justine and um, there's a future program future leaders program and we've committed to 30% of those leaders coming from um, black talent and we set ourselves a really ambitious target so in 2019 we set ourselves a target for 20% of our partners coming from black and minority ethnic uh, backgrounds we've now said publicly that we want 15 of that 20% to be from the black communities specifically
0: Gavin, tell us about the hashtag I am and hashtag talk about black campaigns you're involved with. What are their aims?
2: We conceive talk about black basically to shine um, a light on um, the issues facing black people in particular. Um, so not being a uh, homogenous group that BAME would um, denote. And to really raise, uh, make people aware of the issues surrounding uh, minority groups in the um, asset management and associated industries the the i am campaign had two elements to it. The first was uh, i am more likely uh, so uh, I am more likely to grow up without a father. I am more likely to suffer from uh, mental health challenges. I am more likely to be paid less to be lower to be told to lower my expectations. These are all things that as black people in the u s and in the u k that we've, that we've faced. So it, was, it really was um, us saying and asking the question, why do we occupy unfortunately the bottom rung of the societal ladder? The second element, however, was to basically humanise um, that, those stereotypes which do exist. And then it asks for some inclusion and some allyship. So it then asks the question, and what are you?
0: And when it comes to a pipeline of talent for equal representation, what would you say are achievable targets?
2: One of the challenges that we face is that there's a lack of data um, when it comes to um, capturing and understanding uh, where we are, uh, and therefore it's difficult to actually put quantitative targets in place. So I think. Uh, Ironically, one of the targets needs to be to simply start gathering adequate data. Um, I also think that one of the targets needs to be actually unwinding the challenges that um, black professionals face. It's very easy to focus on the lack of, for example, board representation. But you're going to draw your board um, talent from your C-suite, but we have a lack of C-suite representation as well. Um, In fact, we have a lack of C-suite minus one and two. So really, one of the targets um, needs to be understanding the pipeline, understanding the challenges to um, why talent is not progressing or fulfilling its its potential, Um, getting the structures in place so we create sustainable uh, and meaningful change, and then um, having a discussion about how do we actually achieve um, said, said targets.
0: What do you think are the biggest contributors to the current lack of board diversity, Arun?
1: I spend most of my time, Justine, in talking to FTSE chairman or speaking to my clients. And for those who say they haven't managed to reach these levels of proficiency to have a really diverse board, they always say the same two or three things to me. One, they always say there is a lack of pipeline. And if I'm entirely honest, I struggle with that. I mean, in the Parker review, uh, Sir John very clearly set out that you didn't even need to base it on a UK population. So essentially, in the world's population, there's nine odd billion people to choose from. And I find it inconceivable that you cannot find 350 suitably qualified individuals to sit on a board. The other thing I often hear is this argument of merit, to say that we want to recruit on uh, merit, and we don't want to recruit for any other reason. And the, and the issue you have that, well, of course, uh, once again, it, it is entirely improbable that there is not suitably qualified black and minority ethnic people who have the right to merit. The issue that we have is that the frame of reference that's put around what good looks like is so narrowly defined that only a certain group of people uh, can meet the benchmark that has set. So I see both of those reasons as being problematic, and but they're the reasons I hear uh, most. And
0: Gavin, what do you
1: think?
2: I appreciate the Parker review did shine a light on this, but to be honest, I'm not I'm not sure how many like business leaders, firms are actually aware of um, A, the, the, the original park review and then obviously and then obviously the follow up. So I think one of the challenges is, is simply that when people think about diversity and inclusion and representation, they're still stopping at gender. For example, you know the lack of talent that we have at you know the mid-career management level has implications for, I don't know, what ten years, ten years time when we're thinking about board representation. So if you don't deal with that issue, um, this the, the the challenge of board representation is never going to be happen. And then why do we have mid-career professionals? Well, actually, maybe we're not taking enough into the industry. Why are we not taking enough in? Maybe the industries, um, the corporate world, are not attracting talent.
0: Okay, for the moment, thank you both. We look forward to speaking with you again later and we'll meet the rest of our panel next. Joining us now are Moni Manning, Senior Non Executive Director and Chair of Remuneration, InvestEc Bank. Hello, Moni. Hello Justine. And Justin Onikusi, fund manager, head of retail multi-asset funds, legal and general investment manager, and also one of the founders of hashtag TalkAboutBlack. Hello, Justin.
3: Hi Justine. How are you?
0: Good, thank you. Now Moni, from your view of the boardroom, how has the discussion around diversity changed in
4: the last few months? It's a really good question. There have been a range of discussions at board level, but I have to say I think the most significant thing in the last few months is that certainly on my boards. Um, Every single board has had a discussion about diversity over the last few months. I think it's fair to say that after the killing of George Floyd, the prominent coverage of Black Lives Matter, and now the update of the Parker review, what's new and what's different is that it has focused more openly on race and ethnicity. I would agree that in the past, it's been much more focused on gender. And so that's been one of the significant changes, that there is open discussion about um, race and ethnicity. I think that's what I would would highlight. And what have you personally been doing to bring about effective change in this area? So the things that I've been involved with um, have really been um, in two dimensions, I would say, across two different concepts, if I can put it that way. So the two dimensions have been both visible and invisible. And what I mean by that is that visibly, I've uh, joined panels. I've been speaking internally and externally with both internal networks and external board networks and with leaders within the organisation and outside about race. And that's particularly important because it's important to be seen to be talking about it because a lot of people, a lot of boards still find it very uncomfortable. Both people of colour and people who are not people of colour find it uncomfortable. So that's been something that I've actively involved myself invisibly. And in terms of the invisible involvement, I've been making sure that behind the scenes, in remuneration committees, and nomination committees, um, we have succession plans that specifically identify the question of why do we not have more people of, um, with a BAME background or people of different ethnicities um, in our pipeline? Um, how do we go about supporting? I've been asking the questions. And there's been a time for that. And I think in terms of content, the two areas that I've been focusing on have been this concept of meritocracy and colour blindness is is one whole area. People being worried across boards and in my organisations that, well, is it merit versus ethnicity? It isn't. And then the other thing that I've been um, challenging my boards on and it's something that Sir John Parker puts really well in the, in the, Parker, the updated Parker Review, is this um, sort of desire to let things happen in an evolutionary fashion. And I think he says um, that too many of us fear uh, and remain uh, complacent about change happening sort of naturally through the, the normal passage of time. And what he says is most of us know that this never works in any other aspect of our business and it won't work here. And I think that's the other thing I've been putting across.
0: Okay, Justin, within the investment community, give us a sense of how expectations have changed this year.
3: So I think when it comes to expectations, we've seen really a recognition that maybe enough hasn't been done and clearly that needs to change. So it's worth noting, though, over the last few years, there has been a movement uh, and in an evolving, where we have seen a movement towards this overall change. We've seen things like the Diversity Project being set up, and this is a group of asset managers coming together, all trying to create a, a more inclusive culture. We've seen corporate um, responsibility teams, which you know used to be uh, a team that used to be you know not on the necessarily on the investment floor but not definitely not front and centre of the investment floor now become more front and centre as companies start engaging uh, start engaging more. I think you've seen the growth of ESG from a client perspective on the institutional and retail side, and we do think that it is going to be a key area where you will see uh, more in uh, force and more thinking around diversity overall. But I suppose what hasn't worked has been Engagement, engagement over the last few years uh, has been low and there's a recognition that that has to improve and the focus has to move from just a purely gender uh, agenda to uh, ethnicity.
0: And how much can investors and shareholders contribute to reform?
3: Definitely quite a lot. Um, you know, when you look at shareholders and, and, and investors, uh, firstly, there's clearly enforced, um, enforced action. And this would be done from, by regulation. And we have seen regulation both on the institutional side with the Department of Work and Pensions introducing uh, regulation for trustees to have in their statement investment principles a focus on ESG. Uh, and in particular, as ESG evolves, the S of ESG, the social side, is becoming more and more prevalent. And, and on the retail side, you know, you've seen uh, MIFID uh, and uh, ESMA laws. Um, start to be put in place. At the moment, still guidance, but the FCA says for a financial advisor, when a high net worth individual comes in their office, they have to have a a focus on not just their investment risk, but other risks as well, including ESG, which again, as time evolves, the S of ESG will become more important. But finally, uh, we have seen this new stewardship code uh, this year, and this is a code that outlines a set of principles that signatories are supposed to follow. And this is a revised stewardship code in 2020 from the 2012 first um, origination. And there's a greater emphasis on ESG when fulfilling stewardship responsibilities for investors. Now, if you sign it, you have to apply, you have to comply with all of the principles and articulate how you're applying to them. Uh, but also also there's a new definition of stewardship. So uh, reinforcing or re-emphasizing that you're looking after clients' assets. So really this raises the bar for investors and shareholders and w- when people sign up to this, it will you know can kind of help to drive overall reform uh, in the industry.
0: Thanks to both of you. Do stay with us as we round off this podcast by looking more at the action needed in the months ahead. Next. Board matters. Arun Batra and Gavin Lewis are still with us, along with Moni and Justin. So let's get your thoughts now on what needs to happen over the next few months and year to bring about change. There's been a lot of talk, but what are the priorities that will bring about action and outcomes? Arun, let's start with you.
1: So I get asked this question a lot, and if I could try and provide what I see as being those incremental steps, I think would make the biggest difference. So our colleagues in the US have baked really clearly into the legislative framework, the advantages for treating minorities who are proportionately disrepresented um, more fairly. So for example, in your supply chain, if you engage with minority suppliers, you get tax benefits. So I think, because there's a recognition in the US that this stuff doesn't happen on its own, having some regulatory change uh, that's an incentive for business to want to engage more with underrepresented suppliers would be a very sensible thing to do. Ditto with the, F- the FRC, Financial Reporting Council Corporate uh, Governance Code. So as part of the Parker review, We have pushed for a change to the content of the Corporate Governance Code, and we're nearly there in ensuring that as part of the reporting cycle for businesses, that they report on performance against the review's ambitions, i.e. how many ethnic minority people are you having in your board, and hoping to be able to extend that actually to executive teams, not just uh, boardrooms. I think one of the biggest drivers, Justine, will be ethnic pay reporting, and it may not be the reporting in itself that's important, it's the incremental impact of having it. So if you look at gender pay reporting, what happened is every single business in the UK, over 250 people suddenly had to wake up and smell the coffee, and they actually, A, our women are not being paid the same as our men. And B, what do we need to do structurally to change our infrastructure in order to give women a fairer chance in order to be paid fairly? And that's what I think ethnic pay reporting will do. So to be honest, I'm less bothered about the gap. Um, Well, actually, let me rephrase. I am bothered about the gap, but I'm more bothered about the impact that it will have on business to do the right thing for their people structurally. Gavin, what are your thoughts?
2: I think one one of the challenges is just simply this idea of culture. So... You know, firms, you know, um, will talk about having a very, very strong and unique culture. And then clearly out of that comes this idea of, uh, you know, is this person a cultural fit? Well, the challenge that you have with that is that culture has probably been defined by a very narrow demographic. Um, So the question that you have to ask yourself is, is is that culture actually inclusive? And are firms aware of this? Is there anyone there at the, the, the top challenging, challenging this? And as a result, are we actually getting the best out and bringing that, um, bringing that talent through? So I think, you know, in addition to the hard you know, things that, that the firms need to do in terms of issuing targets and making policy statements, there's this whole other cultural piece, which I think we really need to, we really need to wrestle with and, and ask, you know, and, and as businesses ask ourselves, You know, what culture are we residing in and are we making it acceptable for people to really flourish um, and contribute um, to, uh, to businesses?
4: Moni, coming to you. Oftentimes, particularly at the graduate level, we are hiring for difference. It's sort of acknowledged, but then we fire because people aren't the same and don't fit in. And it's that exactly that that issue. So I think some of the things that we can do beyond the talk and the empathy and the sympathy and, you know, the the fine words are we must collect the data. The data is not going to tell us whether there's a problem. We already know there's a problem, but it will help us evaluate whether we are making a difference from one year to the next. So We must collect the data. Um, We have to give responsibility to executives within the organisation, just like we would if we were going to set up a new business line if we were going to increase margins If we're going to do whatever we have to give specific responsibility we have to set goals and we have to measure because otherwise how do we know whether we're getting towards what we want to get to and we have to um, hold people accountable those are all exactly the same tools that we use for every other aspect of our businesses so we should simply apply those known proven um, uh, techniques to make a change on this um And in terms of being held accountable, the wider stakeholder community has a huge part to pay. So we have to disclose. We have to show our workings out. We have to show what we're doing. And I would say that's the translation of the strong sentiment, which is held by a very wide range of people. What's great about... Uh, the, the times that we're in at the moment is that we have allies, or we have willing allies, we have um, intentional allies. Let's use that to actually make tangible difference um, by implementing it through our organisation. I think we can do tangible things. And Justin.
3: Yeah, so I, I would just add that pipeline is vitally important. So similar to what the other speakers have said, there are lots of senior ethnic minorities. At our organizations that aren't at c-suite that aren't at board levels they might be managing directors at banks they might be partners at law firms fund managers within uh, investment management businesses i do think that there, there's almost a crying out for sponsorship of this top talent otherwise what will happen is that this this talented group of people who are you know toward the top of their organizations but not quite at board level not quite at c-suite level it will be a lost generation.
0: Okay, well, finally, what are your views about the longer term implications of board diversification on companies and its impact on society? in starting with you.
3: Well, firstly, all the studies, all the academic studies show that business results can be improved with a more diverse board. You get greater cognitive diversity. But I, I do think it's really important from a company perspective to recognise the ethnic minority leaders at the top um, if you have those people at the top, they're more likely to understand the structural barriers to progression because they simply have a lived experience of it. They've been through organizations. And I do think that that, um, in terms of focusing and building out policy that can help to remove some of these structural barriers, that is vitally important. So that's for a company perspective. But then from a societal perspective, I think it's fundamental that we don't underestimate the, the famous quote by Marian Wright's Endelman, you, you can't be what you can't see. Uh, I do think that you know people in communities, if they can see uh, people reaching the top of our businesses at board level, it does give hope. It does give um, uh, ambition to children and communities and it will encourage those to um, uh, kind of be, be, um, be more interested in our large industries,
4: Moni, would you agree? Completely agree with um, with those points, and I think um, the other dimension I put in is at this particular point in um, British business life, when we are um, we have decided not to be part of Europe, but in theory to be part of the rest of the world, and we already have significant portions of our own society who we are not including in our structures and institutions. And the better we can do that, the better we will be at being able to play on the World Forum. We already have a great position, um, but it could be so much stronger, better, uh, more informed, more nuanced and subtle with the huge talent that there is within our own society to take our businesses and organisations forward. So um, it is a... Uh, an opportunity waiting to be to be taken and one that could be squandered if we don't address it properly.
1: Arun? Um, I completely agree with Moni's points actually in this this contradiction of opening ourselves to the world but not including our uh, own people. I just want to add a couple of other things, that's for a broader perspective. So yes, absolutely, this is not a compromise and of course it will encourage greater levels of investment and it'd be better for brand and you'll have greater access to markets. But I think there is something much broader going on here. There is a certain type of person that succeeds in British business today and they fit a certain archetype. Uh, And we've done lots of research around this and it tends to be somebody who's slightly arrogant, uh, who's, who's more extrovert than introvert and who would give up family life in order to succeed and so on and so forth. And I think actually every bit of evidence that I have seen about creating a much more broader, inclusive workplace would lead to not only a more healthy business, but a more profitable one. And actually, it's only when we truly embrace that is when I think we'll get to a much better place uh, as a business community. So headline for me, this is not a compromise. This is a very sensible thing to do. And Gavin?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I I, I feel this is the the connection between business and society and the lack of representation not just of black professionals, but of the broader society is um, I think this is the existential crisis um, that i 'm not sure our industries realize is is upon them um, and you 'll often hear people scoff at the idea that businesses should be representative of societies, and you know they 'll often say well for what for what purpose well but the purpose is because um businesses don't operate in a vacuum businesses are part of our social fabric and society has spoken uh very very loudly about a range of of issues the british people have spoken about um you know their feelings about being in in europe um the british people have spoken about you know where on the political spectrum they now they now stand um the, the people have spoken you know people have spoken about they made very clear how they feel about racial inequality and it's very easy to be in a business and think that these things don't affect you apart from the bottom line well actually it's it, it's the opposite I think you know the survivability of businesses d- is dependent upon um their relevance uh, and the role that they play in in society, and. You know the the evolution of ESG investing and the, the rise of the the S yes, which has always been lagging behind the E is is testament to that. So I think um, if businesses don't start to uh, be more connected to societies and have a mission and social a degree of, of social purpose at least um, and execute social contracts, uh, I, I think they will cease to be to be relevant and if, if it's not through consumer choice. It will be through not realising that actually, you know, the, the world has moved on and, and whatever product or service that we offer is no longer relevant. You know, the, the Kodak moment can happen more than once.
0: Well, thanks very much to all of you for taking part in our discussion and sharing with us your thoughts on such an important topic. And if you found our discussion helpful and you'd like to find out more, please email neds at uk.ey.com. That's NEDS at uk.ey.com. I'm Justine Green, and for me and all of our guests, thanks for listening and goodbye. Board Matters. Back soon.